Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Celeste Stein Show. I am your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and I invite you to like, share, and subscribe to my channel on bbsradio.com and on YouTube, where I can be found under the Celeste Stein Show. Please send me a message through my bbsradio.com page if you would like to be a guest on my show. Now, today, we are going to be speaking with an award-winning, internationally recognized digital public health specialist of three decades whose mission is to inspire young people to save the planet, and she does this through her literature. Dr. Patricia Michelle is also a mother and one who combines her passions for technology, innovation, science, women's rights, and the environment to inspire others. Dr. Michelle, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Celeste. All right. Well, I wanted to start right off here by having you to tell me a little bit about how you have evolved into writing to reach others, especially our youth, with this mission to save the world. Sure. So I, uh, I've, I've worked now in public health for close to 30 years. And, but even before I got into public health, I always wanted to write fiction and especially children's books. And, and I gave myself permission to write fiction about eight years ago, but I started with an adult public health thriller. And then, uh, and then over time kind of worked my way to younger and younger, uh, younger and younger audiences. And um, at the start of the pandemic, I uh, was kind of joking with my son, who was seven at the time, that we wouldn't be in such a hot mess if kids were in charge. And he got really into that. And we started this amazing collaboration, which led to the book, The Antidotes Pollution Solution, about a group of kids who worked together to stop a plastic eating bacteria experiment gone wrong that's making fish and kids sick. Mm. Wow. I mean, that that is amazing work uh, because I think that's where a lot of solutions can be found in our young people and the passion, the drive. And we definitely have to get them involved. So hats off to you for moving in that wonderful direction there. But I want to say when it comes to health, you certainly have a host of topics uh, to focus on, but especially, you know, things like pandemic preparedness, responsible technology and AI and mental health. So today I would like to touch on these areas in our conversation. And I want to begin with pandemic and being prepared. The preparedness piece of it uh, is so essential. So uh, a lot of people would like to think we've made it through one pandemic here um, (laughs) recently. How prepared do you think we were and are we ready for the next one? So we were not prepared for the, <laughs> for the COVID-19 pandemic, unfortunately. Uh, I think a lot of people didn't take it very seriously at first or didn't fully understand or appreciate the magnitude of it. That, um, you know, I remember hearing people say, oh, it'll just be two weeks and we'll be back to normal and 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 really thinking, you know, you know, they've just declared this a pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. This is not going to go away in two weeks. <laughs> Even right. if every human on the planet did exactly what they were supposed to do, you know, we were not, it was not going to, it was not going to um, resolve itself within that short period of time. And yeah. I think what we, yeah, what we discovered during the pandemic was that we 
we, we were just, we're not prepared. We did not have the infrastructure and we did not have the, the attitude that was needed to actually work together to resolve it faster. Mm-hmm. Well, are we, are, are we better off now? Do you think, are we a little bit more prepared? Should something else, you know, another pandemic, God forbid, come along because I keep hearing that, Hey, this probably will not be the last. It probably won't be. I think we're going to see other pandemics in our lifetimes, unfortunately. And, and no, we're not prepared for the next pandemic because I think people were in such a rush to get back to normal life that they weren't sort of thinking about what are the things that we need to do in parallel to make sure that we are, are well-equipped and prepared for the next one. And, and I think some of the basic things that we've done is we've let our investments in public health erode. Um, we don't have very strong public health infrastructure anymore, even though the United States was like the leader in public health for many, many decades. We were the first country in the world to have a center for disease control, um, which started with malaria eradication. And we were able to eradicate malaria in the United States. We were able to eradicate polio from the United States uh, by investing in public health and and working together to, um, to address big public health challenges. We did not do that for the pandemic. There was not this sense of we are all in this together and we all need to kind of do our own individual part so that the whole of society is protected and safe. Mm-hmm. Do you think we learned any major lessons um, besides that we weren't prepared from the coronavirus pandemic? Is there anything, you know, that sticks out in your mind as oh, this, this at least is something good that's come out of living through, you know, what many believe to be a nightmare, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think we did. I think we we saw a really good embracing of uh, technology in a really positive way from a public health perspective so that we were able to track uh, what was happening in real time in a very different way from a disease surveillance perspective. Um, and then we were able to make informed decisions in certain parts of the country based on the numbers, right? So if we knew yeah, I, I live in Washington, D.C., and I was very proud of the response of Washington, D.C. to the pandemic that the head of the um, Department of Health in Washington, she's a rock star. She really led the the charge. And, and we knew exactly, you know, we had very clear communication. We knew where we were. We knew where we were headed. And what we needed to do to get from point A to point B. And so, so we saw very effective responses to uh, the pandemic in different places. Um, but there wasn't necessarily like a holistic response as, as a country. And so some parts of the country did really well, others struggled uh, more. Um, and then we also saw throughout the world, you know, some countries had a very positive response, other countries did not. And when you're dealing with a global pandemic, mm-hmm. like we're all in this together. So like everyone has to uh, engage. Um, you can't just have kind of like one country doing everything and right. other countries not doing their part. Right. I think that communication piece 
is the biggest um, issue that came out of this where, like you said, information was really just not trickling down to other states. Um, and, you know, I have family in Washington. So the things they'd be telling me versus what I was hearing in Tennessee, where I was located at the time, I, you know, was like, this is very different than what's going on here. I said, we live in a very rural area. So, I mean, my neighbors are, you know, two miles away, you know, so some of the things that you're saying kind of doesn't apply. Also at the time we had like three cases and New York and DC had a lot more, you know, so that's why there was somewhat of a communication issue because one size does not fit all. And, and there should have been a better, I think, coordinated effort between, you know, states and, and at the uh, federal level versus the, you know, state and local levels. And so I don't know if it's anything, I think that communication could have uh, definitely been better. And then, what about on the um, PPE side, you know, the equipment, the yeah. personal protective uh, equipment uh, that was talked about, everything from masks and then with healthcare professionals, people don't always understand what we're talking about. So people throw that PPE thing out there, but it's, you know, the bonnets that go on the head, it's the uh, gear from uh, latex gloves and um footies for the, the the feet to bibs and all kinds of uh, protective gear and even uh, things that uh, emergency responders use from the, you know, protective equipment they use in the field. Um, do you think that um, that's an issue that really needs a focus? Uh, should we find ourselves in this position again? Absolutely. I mean, I think we need to really think about our supply chain for health supplies and make sure that we have those things. I mean, even things like oxygen. I mean, you know, like there's like everything from protective gear to having oxygen in the right places at the right time, um, you know, became, you know, issues that that we just did not anticipate, you know, having to having to deal with, even though there was a report done about this very, very thing you know, 10 years before the pandemic under the Obama administration that actually detailed like what we should do to be prepared for a pandemic. <laughs> and uh, and of course, you know, it just got completely uh, ignored and, and, and nothing and nothing happened uh, as a result. I mean, I think one of the interesting things as, as a, a scientist is that we do know, we know a lot more about what needs to happen than we actually do. And, and I think there's a disconnect between, you know, knowing that we need to have, you know, PPE and, and sufficient, you know, quantities of supplies um, to be prepared for, you know, different types of disease outbreaks and, and then actually doing it right. And, and investing the resources in, uh, in those things. Um, right. And and there's the whole issue of equity. Um, a lot of uh, places that serve in underserved communities, uh, you know, maybe didn't have the same access as others, um, you know, to some of the, the equipment that was needed. Um, and, you know, maybe there were disproportionate deaths and things like that, that could have been avoided 
had we, you know, maybe had that whole plan, um, you know, thought out, I think a little bit more than we did. But anyway, one of the things I wanted to ask too, uh, what are some things that you think we can and should be doing right now to prepare for the next potential health crisis? Sure. I mean, I think we need to reinvest in in public health infrastructure. I do believe that we, you know, right now, I think we are spending, you know, 20% of what we used to spend on public health, like mm-hmm. infrastructure, whether it's having the right numbers of staff, having the, the right surveillance systems in place. Um, having the right distribution of health workers in different populations that can help respond to um, to different health crises. We're also seeing erosion in our you know basic public health things like clean water. And so you know more and more places in the country are struggling with access to basic clean water, which is which is a fundamental you know public health foundation is, um, you know, we'll all be healthier if we're drinking clean water um, and and those sorts of things. And so we don't, we aren't paying attention to and, and investing in the sorts of things that we need to be investing in so that we have the foundation so that when the next crisis happens, that we're really ready for it. Yeah, it would be nice to see us uh, with a little more proactive uh, planning here to make sure that the things that we can do, it's like, do something, you know, like, you know, I think if if you need to write your legislators or or what have you, so that we can hopefully not have to live through uh, something as uh, egregious as the pandemic was uh, when it came to the coronavirus. Um, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, We're going to be discussing technology and artificial intelligence. I hope you'll stay tuned. We'll be back right after this. A lot of things have come to a screeching halt due to COVID-19, but you should know that the court system in Tennessee is still open and holding in-person hearings for orders of protection and other types of abuse cases. If you have a hearing date, double-check on where your hearing will be held. If you need assistance on an order of protection or temporary restraining order, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443 or visit our website at www.las.org. And welcome back. You're listening to The Celeste Stein Show, and I'm here with Dr. Patty Michelle, and we're going to take a few minutes now to focus on artificial intelligence and technology. And so I wanted to begin by letting you know, in my opinion, what I think is about to happen with technology or has already started to happen with technology and artificial intelligence is going to be more major than the Industrial Revolution. And I think it's going to happen a lot quicker. So what do you think? Absolutely. I think it is already happening. I think we're seeing the effects of it on some of the um, algorithms that are driving you know, everything from shopping decisions and marketing online to social media, um, as as well as, um, you know, even, you know, just, um, you know, actual platforms that people are starting to bring into the education sector, whether it's, you know, chat GPT, um, 
and, and, and in other ways. So, and I think sometimes it's very difficult for people to recognize the extent to which, you know, am I dealing with a human or am I dealing with technology? You know, is there, is there the wizard behind the curtain, you know, guiding things or is the wizard, um, you know, a bot or some sort of, uh, some sort of algorithm that is either fully under the control of a human or, you know, uh, generative AI, which is, you know, kind of pushing the, the boundaries to the place where humans can no longer, you know, explain what the algorithms are doing. Right. And, um, that, whole notion of kind of reaching a level of human consciousness. You know, from what I've learned, it's like AI basically compiles data and information from humongous databases. And it keeps pulling that information. And it's almost like a baby human when they're, when they're learning things. And so the more they learn, you know, the more they kind of start to think and do different things and can, eventually evolve to the place where they they can build other robots, you know, and that kind of thing. So I think all that's going to be extremely interesting, but with every good thing that may come about, I'm sure there's something <laughs> not so good that can and cancel this out. And one of the things uh, I wanted to talk about, you know, you said that, you know, hospitals uh, maybe don't have as many employees as they did, and we maybe don't have enough workers to fill certain positions. So I know from what I have researched myself in other countries that uh, AI is already being used to um, like work in nursing homes where there are nursing shortages. Um, and, uh, you know, that probably would not have been a bad thing during a pandemic to not have a human in there, but everything from lifting uh, people and, you know, avoiding injuries, you know, there are some good things that can come about here, but um, will we lose too much of our workforce to uh, jobs that people used to rely on. I know in here in Florida, they passed a law recently and a lot of the workers from migrant workers to those who do uh, jobs um, that are um, as basic as cleaning services, um, they've lost about 75% of the, the workforce here in Florida that are going to other places because um, if they don't have a driver's license or they obtain the driver's license um, and, and didn't have proper ID a couple of years ago when they obtained it, they may be detained or they may be, you know, deported and things like that. So what do you think is going to happen um, to the workforce as you see it um, in terms of when, when um, they're no longer, those jobs will probably no longer be needed. What, how do we, how do we deal with that? Um, because that's going to be a huge issue, especially if you don't have the skills the computer skills necessary to evolve with what is happening. No, I, I think, I think you're, you're right. But I also have, you know, in, in looking at like the evolution of new technology and innovations historically, I think every time some new, you know, technology or innovation comes, you know, everyone's like really afraid 
right? And so there's a lot of fear around, okay, what is this going to mean for for society, right? When the uh, when we first had the first automobiles and we went from you know horse drawn carriages to to cars, there was this sort of oh my gosh, like the world is going to end. We're all going to be like driven by machines, and you know, and and I think you know I'm 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 more optimistic that as humans we will we will find ways to become more sensible about like these technologies and, and find the place for it within, you know, within society. And, and I do think, you know, for every technology, there's the pros and, and the, 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 the technology isn't the thing it's, it's really like, how are we using that technology? Are we using it for, you know, uh, positive means? Are we using it for negative means? And, you know, the same thing can go, uh, can go either way. I think for a long time, everyone thought that computers were going to replace humans. That has not happened. Um, I don't believe that AI is going to do that either, I think. But I do believe that the role of humans is going to change. And and I think we have to be prepared for that change and we have to approach that change more proactively. Um, I had a colleague who... um, I was teaching with at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, who assigned to our students to, you know, ask, you know, chat GPT, a series of health questions, and then analyze where chat GPT got the questions right and got the questions wrong. And, and I do think that there, and, and for the most part, most of the responses from chat GPT were 78 to 80% correct. But in health, it's that 20 to 30% that you have to be careful of because you're dealing with people's lives. It's not just, you know, and so, so, so there is going to be this need for kind of like human technology uh, interfaces and interaction. And so I think it's going to be more of like a, human assisted technology approach that we're going to need to take. And, and so I don't think technology is going to, to, um, you know, completely do away with, with humans, but we're going to have to kind of like shift the way we engage with technology. And we have to understand, we have to become much more like critical thinkers and users of technology to kind of know, to tease out, you know, when the technology is off and when it's on. Right. I think, you know, after a while, though, as the technology, the AI kind of compiles more data, it will become more and more effective. I've uh, tested out, you know, some, some of the AI and I'm, I'm just amazed uh, (laughs) from a, say a public relations standpoint and it being able to write letters and things that, you know, and go through emails and things like that, that was taking some people a very long time 
you know, to get through. It can really um, basically put all that together. You can look at it. But nine times out of 10, what I'm seeing is it it is pretty accurate. Um, you may have to add a little something to it, like you're saying. But I think the more things are created, uh, the better it will get. Now, on the downside of it, one of the things that I'm seeing um, are I think they're going to be a lot of new legal issues popping up that never have have been you know really even anything on the radar that we've thought about that we're going to that we're going to need to address so like when you're using someone's name or image or likeness or voice without their permission um, this is something that we've seen just recently in the AI generated Drake in the weekend song called The Heart on My Sleeve. I don't, I'm sure a lot of people probably heard about that and, uh, you know, saw that on the news. I think this is something that I deem to be very problematic uh, when it comes to one's intellectual property, uh, their rights to that and their rights to their own image and likeness. And I think People are already kind of thinking about that when it comes to certain platforms um, as far as social media goes and what kind of information uh, we're giving away and those kind of things that uh, really are, you know, people are starting to talk about and because we don't know enough about what is about to happen. And so people need to be watching what their children are doing, I think, and very cautious. But um it does seem like it's only the beginning and we really do need to, uh, to, you know, watch this. And one thing I noticed uh, an article I read in time magazine um, with that Drake song in the, in the weekend song, do you know that that song generated 20 million streams on multiple social media platforms in under 48 hours? 20. I mean, think about that. And it was not, them. I mean, it was all generated through AI. And so um, there are all kinds of questions, you know, who is profiting from this AI generated music? Um, How can an artist uh, or individual protect their image and likeness so that their royalties that they're entitled to aren't stolen from them? Um, Are those things that you're, you know, on, on your radar at all? Have you been kind of following that? And what are your thoughts? Absolutely. Um, I think two things that that you just said that really sparked um, for me. One thing that I think we do have to be careful of is the equity piece because and representation. And so as as far as AI is becoming smarter and smarter, the data that it's pulling from is often not representative of society. And I think that's a very a, a big challenge that we have to, from a responsible AI perspective, be very cognizant of. And generally, the people who are programming the algorithms do not look like you and me. And um, and so, so we, you know, we have the risk of introducing things like gender bias or or racial bias into um into technology in ways that I think are going to be that we will have to watch from a from an ethical perspective. Um, I mean, I, most of my work is in low and middle income countries and you bet you in, you know, in, uh, in countries throughout the continent of Africa, when you're deploying artificial intelligence, that's been, you know, programmed in North America or Europe, predominantly on 
you know, research that's been done, you know, or data that is, is predominantly white. These are big issues that we need to, or male, et cetera. These are big issues that we need to tackle and, and, and really um, address in our, um, in our approach to AI. I think the, we need to decouple the, um, the business models from, uh, from AI. And I think, you know, there is a really interesting podcast that I was listening to recently with, um, uh, with Ezra Klein, where he was sort of talking a little bit about this, that, you know, one of the big challenges that we've seen with everything from Google to social media, et cetera, is that so much of the misuse is driven by the, the business models behind them, that, that there's like an economic incentive that is driving a lot of the misinformation, disinformation uh, types of challenges. And I think similar to the, the, the example that you just shared is that when the business models are so closely tied to the AI and to the algorithms, it's going to be really tough to benefit, you know, sort of create societal benefits from artificial intelligence that become more like public goods um, and keep it from kind of increasing the space between like the haves and the have nots. And, and I can see it really, you know, um, putting this spanner in, into society if we're not careful uh, in terms of how we're like thinking about it, talking about it, putting in place regulations. One of his recommendations in the podcast was we need to disconnect. We need to mm-hmm. put a firewall between, you know, AI and the money-making machines that are starting to spring up because that is, that is going to be the thing that really fuels um, a lot of the, the misuse and the inability to put the genie back in the bottle. Right, exactly. And I think uh, the, the concern for me, I've been studying all this for about, you know, six years um, working on, you know, uh, a PhD in strategic comm where, you know, I've really delved into uh, new media technologies and all this stuff that was coming up. And there were so many ethical issues. And one of of the things you mentioned earlier, um, when you were talking about um, wearable technology and things like that, that will be able to trace, you know, and track your heart rate and be able to pretty much get information back to your doctor's office or medical providers that uh, can let you know you might be about to have a heart attack before, you know, you know, or could get to the doctor, you know, so, or could already be notifying 911, you know, which could save your life. So these are good things about it, but the the downside, you know, I was just thinking, um, you know, when, all this stuff is being transmitted. You have people's uh, sensitive health information. You know, you have hackers. There are people that could be hacking in. I mean, even with your vehicles, you know, you could be driving somewhere using a 
<laughs> you know, uh, an electric self-driving car or something, and someone could actually, you know, hack into that and create havoc. So there, there obviously is a lot of good, uh, but, but not so good. And so there probably needs to be uh, all kinds of laws and, and things like that, that we haven't even begun to think about. And I know one of the things, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, I'm, I feel like you will be, but I uh, noted that uh, Saudi Arabia has purchased uh, one of the humanoid robots, Sophia. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with that? Um, basically, they <laughs> are the first, uh, you know, to purchase uh, one of these, these humanoids. One of the things that... Um, is a question is if a robot uh kind of a i don't i don't want to almost say self-thinking but if if one of these robots actually commits a crime mm -hmm. that's nothing that's ever been on the books so there are issues that could be very very serious that i do believe people really do need to start thinking about talking about and I think some people are aware, but the majority are not aware. And so before something is is upon us, just like the cell phones, um, you know, we need to, to learn more. And, and speaking of cell phones, um, I want to talk a little bit about that, too, when it comes to uh, children and cell phones. Um, I read through the Pew Foundation that a third of parents say their children have used a cell phone or smartphone before the age of five. Um, I know you've done a lot of work in that area. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, what do you think are some of the harmful effects of smartphone usage uh, with uh, our youth and, and young people? Absolutely. So, so there's a lot of research that has shown that the the more you delay access to a mobile phone, um, the healthier the the young people are, and um, and one and the more you can keep them on like larger devices, the the more safe you can keep them from. You know, there's a lot of online harms. There's predatory behavior. There's all sorts of things that are happening. Um, and so, you know, so the, like the general recommendation is like, if they're watching something like watch it on a TV, if they're, you know, you know, if they're mobile, do it on a tablet, but right. the last resort should be like the mobile phone itself. Um, mm -hmm. Because once young people move towards more individual level accounts, it is much harder to track their behaviors and, and the things that they're getting into. And, yeah. and, and so with the smaller and smaller devices, there's a lot more risk that, that young people can get into, um, all sorts of trouble and they don't necessarily have the cognitive, um, you know, maturity to understand yes. what it is that they are being exposed to or, uh, et cetera, um, and then the other bit, you know, you, you, so that's just the phone now throw onto that social media and it's like a whole other, um, you know, playing field. And so, so with social media, 
you know, there's a lot more risk that, that young people um, can get into. It's not a one size fits all. There are some studies that have shown that, you know, there's a sort of like a recommendation that like, you know, young people below the age of 12 should not have, should not have social media. And there's legislation that's currently being, you know, deliberated around this very, you know, this very thing. Right. Funny, funny story. When my kids were young, I was seeing, um, you know, within the school system, I was seeing a lot of um, their peers at very early ages, you know, they had cell phones. Like I'm talking, you know, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds running around with a cell phone and without par- parental consent, you know, uh, well, parents being around, they, they're using these cell phones. And so my kids would get so mad at me because they didn't get a cell phone until they were like 14, you know, like I oh. was not, you know, you know, and, and it's like, they hated me for that, but I think they're better off definitely because of it, because there's so much that they're exposed to. But I remember also an, another funny thing, my mother, there was a, a thing called a game game boy. I think uh, I didn't, I didn't want any parts of it, but my mother decided to, my, my son was just begging her for this Game Boy thing. Okay. And so he had like three of them. He broke two and she bought it every time she'd buy him another one. You know, I was like, we were glad when it was broken, you know, we really didn't want another one. But I learned, I, which this is, I mean, I think a lot of parents did not know this. They could email through the Game Boy. I had no idea. I learned so much. You know, there was so much coming about so quickly. And I just was like, oh, my goodness. You know, so you think something's good and, you know, they everything that looks good, obviously, they say is not good for you. But, you know, it is just um, a lot. And it's going to be even more things like that, that uh, come about even from like watching television and cartoons and things like that. What we deemed as cartoons when I was growing up, I'm watching things and I'm like, this is not for children. You know, <laughs> what we call a cartoon is not you know a cartoon anymore. You know, so we you know really parents need to really pay attention a lot more, uh, and, and because I think so much can go wrong in that area. I want to take a quick break. Um, and, you know, when we come back, we're going to discuss a little bit more about the environment, one of your other areas that uh, I think, you know, you really uh, have done an, a fantastic job. And so we'll, we're going to delve into that when, we'll, uh, when we come back in just a moment. When it comes to relationships, there are some obvious signs you can use to spot someone who might be abusive. First, they have a tendency to want to rush into a relationship. They may also show signs of jealousy and mistrust, and you could find they expect you to be perfect and will try to cut you off from other important relationships. They could also be abusive towards animals and children. To learn more about the signs of dangerous individuals and how you can identify and avoid unhealthy relationships, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443. Welcome back. You're listening to the Celeste Stein Show. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and I'm here with Dr. Patty Michelle. And uh, Dr. Michelle, I wanted to ask you, my next question is going to focus on the environment and global warming. 
Um, there's some who obviously believe that this is not real, something we should not even think twice about or be concerned with. Do you agree? Not at all. I mean, the, the science and the evidence is is showing us that that the earth is is warming, that it is having a significant impact on entire species of uh, of you know, animals, um, as well as humans. I mean, we're seeing more and more, you know, countries having droughts and, um, and then weather anomalies as well. Um, and the increase in, you know, pandemics is largely, uh, being driven by, uh, changes in the environment and the intersection between animal and, and human health. And so, more and more, you know, you, you know, COVID-19 was a disease that started out in the animal population and bats, it transitioned to humans, uh, Zika, yellow fever, many, many diseases, animal population uh, into humans. And as the environment shifts, we are going to see like more and more uh, more and more of that. Um, we're also seeing entire island nations disappearing because the water levels are rising. I was really encouraged by Vanuatu's uh, recent win uh, in the International Criminal Court uh, for the rising water that um, that the country is facing and and holding higher income countries that create a lot of the pollution that's resulting in climate change accountable. Right. We also have the issue of soil, you know, with that, it's like cyclical, you know, one thing affects another, you know, you have soil erosion issues. If we don't have healthy soil, we don't have health, healthy food, uh, food costs go up, how we manufacture and make food and it gets to our table. It, it, it all like one thing again affects the other. And so um, in addition to that, what do you think are are the three maybe biggest environmental issues that we're going to need to really focus on right now? Sure. So I think one of the biggest issues that we're seeing is is plastics. I mean, I think we we don't do enough on uh on plastics. We have um you know, an overabundance in um, in single-use plastics. We, you know, it it takes five seconds to drink a plastic bottle of water, and it takes 250 years to decompose that bottle of water. You know, and and now it's getting into just as you were talking earlier, it's getting into microplastics. We're finding it in our soil. We're finding it in our food. We are finding it in our water supply, and uh, and this is this is a big issue. And this is one of the things that one of the reasons why I wanted to tackle this particular issue in the antidotes pollution solution because I think from a public health perspective, we're going to see more and more climate related issues, and and one of the biggest um, areas that this is going to happen because of is. Uh, is plastic. Um, some of the others are, you know, there's uh, carbon um, and and the carbon footprint that we have. So 
you know, things like automobiles, air travel, etc. These are very big uh, pollutants. So looking for alternative, um, you know, sources of energy. So solar energy, wind energy, um, electric power, and encouraging folks to transition to, you know, other sources, uh, other sources, other sources of energy. Um, right. I think we just have to make sure one thing doesn't impact another. I know I read something uh, this week that a somebody actually posted um, that to replace the battery in their all electric car was twenty nine thousand plus dollars and so i was like can this is this real you know like um i have a hybrid but you know i'm trying to do to somewhat do my part but um i i was amazed so i looked up to see how much it would be to replace mine and it was like you know between five and six thousand dollars for a hybrid car but i think for uh, a, a friend of mine who's a journalist um, looked it up and he, I guess on Snopes and it was like, this is true. <laughs> like yeah. it costs as much as the vehicle yeah. itself. And then how are those batteries eventually disposed of? We haven't even <laughs> started to talk about that kind of thing. Um, it seems like a good idea, you know, on the front end in theory until you can start ticking off the boxes in terms of, all right, what else uh, is going to happen as a result of using this as opposed to, you know, the, the carbon footprint we just talked about. So there are a lot of things that um, I think are really going to be addressed on. So we've hit two. What's the third one? Uh, in terms of uh, global environmental issues you think we really need to focus on right now? So, I mean, I think we all need to um, kind of reduce, like we we have this like consumerist kind of way of of living. I mean, I think we have to, you know, really become much more conscious of, of our individual role in in climate and, and, and what I, you know, oftentimes people are like, oh, well, it's happening and I have nothing to, you know, uh, like there's nothing I can do about it. And it's like, okay, that sort of mentality is the thing that like, I feel like if everybody's thinking that then like we're in serious, (laughs) we're in serious trouble. (laughs) (laughs) got to make some changes here now now i understand you know you've written a book um and several you know articles and and you have a lot of uh information out there tell me uh how how do you use your writing to really uh impact society and especially our children Sure. So I think, you know, one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was that young people were probably the most impacted by the pandemic, and yet we did not engage them as part of the response to the pandemic. And I think we have a real missed opportunity with uh, with young people to kind of like harness their creativity, their love of science, their love of the environment and nature Um, And kind of bring that all together so that they can become like change agents um, in the current, in the 
current situation, um, identifying problems that they see in society and coming up with their own solutions and working together to address those, um, those issues. And that's exactly what they do in, um, in the book, the antidotes pollution solution, the kids sort of identify this like plastic eating bacteria experiment gone wrong. They use, you know, STEM to understand the problems that they're facing and come up with, you know, solutions to it. And they, they sneak around, they, um, they map the diseases, they map the number of kids that are getting sick. And they, they discover that if they all work together and they use less plastic and they encourage others to use less plastic, they can help clean up their water, um, their water sources. And it's something that they, you know, can and, and, and should be, should be doing. Um, I'm, I'm working on the second book right now, which is more on technology. And I think that, you know, um, I think it's, it's good for parents to, you know, help set up controls for kids and technology, but I think we actually have to equip young people to think about technology and to navigate the technological minefield that they are, are finding themselves in, um, because parents are not going to be there, you know, 24 seven to like help their, their young people. I think we need to, um, we need to recognize that, that kids have a lot to offer society and really like important and positive ways. And I think we have to create the space for them to, to do that. Um, and to have fun while they're doing it. <laughs> yeah. I came up with that, uh, same sort of solution, um, in a lot of the research that I, I've engaged in when it came to new media technologies that a lot of times people think, um, you know, it's, it's the adults that are going to be the ones that, you know, come up with all the ideas and the solutions, but they think so differently because they have been engaged in the technology and using computers from right out the gate. You know, I remember my son being two and figuring out how to turn my Mac on that, you know, it took us like a week when we got it out the box, you know, (laughs) you know, they're already ingratiated into and indoctrinated into this world. And so it really is an important um, that they're part of the solution. Um, wanted to ask you too, how do you think parents can actually safely um, begin to get their kids involved in becoming part of the solution and not being part of the problem? I think it starts with having conversations. I mean, I think, you know, the more we can talk to, to our young people and, um, about the problems that they're, you know, that they're seeing and, and that they're facing and then collectively brainstorm, you know, potential solutions or things that we can do together. Um, you know, I think that's like a good way, um, like a really positive way to do it, but to, to, to give, you know, to, you know, ask kids, okay, like, what do you see as like the top three, you know, biggest challenges that, um, that you can identify in society. And, and a lot of them will say things like, you know, the pandemic, they will say that that this is like, you know, they've all lived through this. So they, you know, um, so they'll say the pandemic, they'll say the environment and climate change. There's a lot of climate anxiety among young people. 
Um, you know, and they'll also say things like, you know, bullying or, you know, like issues that they're struggling with on a very personal level, um, you know, uh, as they navigate, you know, more and more complex, uh, like school environments. Um, you know, I think a lot of schools, when we came back from the pandemic, really focused on academics. And a lot of schools are really struggling with the social behavioral stuff that, that a lot of kids missed a lot in those two years that they were out of of school in terms of socialization and Absolutely. maturity and and growth. And so there's a lot of mental health and 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 those sorts of challenges. But I also think that they're they know they know what the problems are. They also a lot of times know what the solutions are, but they have they struggle with concretely like knowing how to like put the solutions into practice because they're, you know, um, they're in it, but they also don't want to like embarrass themselves in front of their friends and they don't want to like stick out and they don't want to, there's a lot of like self-consciousness that happens, you know, among, uh, among young people. And I think, you know, I think grownups and parents can help kind of provide a safe space for young people to have the conversations, come up with solutions, but can also help kind of brainstorm how to, you know, put those solutions into practice because it's not, it's not easy. Yeah. And I think, I think parents can also kind of help navigate that safe space you just mentioned. Um, I noticed, you know, having been a, a college professor that, a lot of times this whole socialization piece, everybody comes in, they're on their phones, they're looking down, they're not looking up. Um, that's a part of it too, even in the classroom that a lot of people uh, face. And there's usually no set guideline as to how to deal with that. And I had to actually come up with some ideas for that. And um, I think parents should think about that at home in terms of television and cell phone usage and so forth, maybe having times that you do that, but also times that you engage with your family and sit down at the dinner table and have a conversation, really find out, well, how was your day? How how are things going? We have got to get back to some of those basics and then even taking time to quiet the mind. Because, you know, you can be so active in thinking that, <laughs> you know, you never calm down, you know, and, and we have to do that, I think, to be able to think through some of these very complex issues that uh, you brought forth today. And I, I really commend you again on the work that you're doing, and I will continue to follow you and, and talk to you. And I thank you so much uh, for joining us here on the Celeste Stein Show today. I think we're about out of time. I just want to make sure that if you um, would like more information on Dr. Patricia Michelle, please be sure to visit her website. Uh, she can be found at www.patriciamichelle, and that is spelled M-E-C-H-A-E-L.com. Thanks so much for tuning in um, to watch this and other broadcasts of the Celestine Show. Please be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel, or you can also watch 
right on bbsradio.com. Please subscribe there as well. Thanks so much again for being a part of our show today, Dr. Michelle. Um, We'll see you all again next time.